Welcome to I Hate It Here, the podcast for HR and people professionals, making the hardest job in the world just a little bit easier. I'm Hibi Youssef. Welcome, welcome. If you've never been, uh, welcome to HR and Therapy. Today, we're diving into why relationships are so hard at work. Joining me is Rebecca Taylor. She will introduce herself in a second. Um, I'm so happy to have you all here. So without further ado, welcome, Rebecca. Would you like to introduce yourself to Curly yeah. Women Joy? I know. Thank you. I don't know if you look how we're looking at each other in these pictures. Like, I know. Just sitting there, I'm like, how do you do your girls to look so nice? Like, I'm <laughs> any guy. Um, so, hello, everybody. I'm Rebecca Taylor. I'm the co-founder and chief customer officer at SkillCycle. And before actually starting SkillCycle, I worked in HR for 10, 12 years, something like that. So I spent a couple of years at the learning and development of Learning Taylor Fifth Avenue, building training programs for sort of all levels of the organization. Who would have thought that teaching communication was going to be different for retail employees versus development versus corporate? And it kind of became this like thing that I was obsessed with, teaching core competencies to different audiences to make them relevant. Worked my way through, I, after two years in retail on Fifth Avenue, I was like ready to move on. Needed, to, I wanted to make some money, needed to get some sleep. Um, so I went into headhunting. I say, I'm a recovering recruiter. So I got a couple of years at an agency before going in-house at a company where I met my co-founder and CEO, Christy McCann Flynn, which was nine years ago, which is actually kind of strange to say. And so we did a lot of work in constant contact to build a, you know, training, development, coaching, learning, really solving turnover with teaching as opposed to with hiring and backfilling people all the time. Turned out it was actually pretty profitable for the company. The constant contact was acquired by Endurance Group for just over a billion dollars. Christy and I exited and sort of were like, what do we do now? And uh, a lot of that sort of exit was what started the seed fund for what we, for what became SkillCycle. And so a lot of what we do here at Build Cycle is we provide human capital development to all levels of your organization. So like, what does that mean? We help people understand exactly what it is that they're good at, what the company needs them to be good at, how this will show up in their job in terms of goals, and then provide them with the coaching and resources and mentoring to actually close those skills gaps and then really achieve success for themselves. So it's like me and us in a nutshell. I love it. I can't wait. We're going to hear more about skills cycle throughout the entire time, but um, your experience is like so fascinating to me. And I think like when Chris, uh, when um, Rebecca, I almost said Christy, when Rebecca and I first met, we just like instantly vibed on the fact that like coaching is so important and we don't give it enough time and we're going to get deeper into it. And I have so many things I want to talk about. I will not go on a tangent, I promise. Um, <laughs> I'm Hiba Yusuf, creator of, uh, founder and creator behind I Hate It Here, the newsletter, the one I hope that nobody hates their job, but if you do, you can read my newsletter and find ways to make your workplace amazing. And also HR Therapy is my event series. So we are here today to just really talk about the struggles we face as HR people in a really real and honest way. You might hear me drop an F-bomb here and there. We'll see. Um, okay, diving into our topic for today. I always love to like do a high level, what are we talking about and why? Managing relationships is one of the most crucial parts of your job in HR. Honestly, it's everyone, the hardest thing everyone masters in the workplace. But on any given day, employees are managing up, down, and across an organization. And those interpersonal relationships actually cause a lot of stress, with like 50% of employees reporting they're stressed. And the interesting thing about managing relationships is we're all different. Not any two of us are alike. And so the approach to the relationship that we form with any of us will also be different. Some stats that I thought were incredibly helpful when I was like thinking through today's topic, what we're going to talk about. I found this one really fascinating. 88% of professionals say managing up, essentially like managing your manager, equates to career success. I'll let that sit for a second. Yeah. Like your relationship with your manager could really determine your career success. 
how exciting and terrifying. Um, 69% of managers feel uncomfortable communicating with employees. The stat maybe even though that's their job, but that's their son. My God, <laughs> we're going to get to that one too, but that one really made me laugh. And then the last one, and I put this in my newsletter this previous week, employees in the U.S. spend on average 2.8 hours a week in conflict. And a lot of times that conflict comes from our relationship with others. 2.8, it's so funny. A lot of people told me they thought that was too low. Rebecca, I'm I actually do the first two. I did it first too because I was like, but maybe because I think it might depend on environment because like startups are probably going to be ones that they're moving so fast that you're going to see more conflict. And that's kind of where I always work. They come from, but like larger companies, maybe not so much. But is it because they're not spending time in conflict and they're avoided? Yeah, that is my question. Yeah. But yeah, I, spoiler alert, I actually like love conflict. I've done a lot of research <laughs> on like why. And it's because of the way like you grew up and you like were exposed to your parents and your siblings and how you challenge their ideas and it's your approach to conflict. So something interesting to do, look internally about how you feel about conflict. I love it. My One of my closest friends, very conflict diverse. So it makes our relationship as friends interesting. Yeah. Um, without further ado, let's jump in. First question, Rebecca, how do power dynamics impact the ability to manage relationships? So for the sake of just having a shared language and shared definition, power dynamics are basically when you have someone who's in a position of power and they can have control or a say in what the other person, be their career looks like, their raise, and they have sort of a vested interest in this person and their success. Power dynamics can be really, really tough because there's always going to be one person that has more control and the other person is always going to be wondering like, what do I say to this person? Is this going to impact something else? So when you look at like, for example, the, where I think a lot of people have a hard time managing up to their manager or thinking about their manager, it's because at the end of the day, the manager is the one who decides if they get promoted or who decides if they're going to get a raise. Sometimes those things go together. Sometimes they don't in this new world. But it's really hard to be open and honest with someone who you're always going to wonder if they could use that information against you one day. Yeah. And, and what's so funny is, I've always been sort of like, you know, now, especially being a co-founder, I have a team. Like, I realize that I have a lot of power in the company and I'm always like, I can be really open and honest with people all the time, but I'm always like, I try to encourage the team to do that too. And I realize that it's not as easy, even in a place where we know that this is what's going on. We know that power dynamics are a thing and we know that we have psychological safety, but there still is always going to be this thing that's holding it back. Yeah. I actually think power dynamics are kind of what make HR feel really lonely. Yeah. Which is something you said like weeks ago that completely resonated with me. But what do you think? It's always really interesting thinking about this. Like when in environments I have felt really safe to like say what I'm thinking and, and other ones when haven't I? And like who has the power in each? It's also from like a diversity, equity, and inclusion angle. If you look up to your leadership team and they're supposedly the people who all have the power and they're all from like one demographic group. I think it can feel so lonely as like a woman and a person of color in a workplace. Mm -hmm to look up and think everyone who has power doesn't look like me. Yeah. And then I think it starts shaping your experience, the feedback you give, your ability to like influence change because you're thinking to yourself, no one like me is in power. Like mm -hmm. how can I possibly navigate this? It also is so difficult with like a manager who really does have like power over you, which is why sometimes I hate performance management systems that are just like manager downward because they have all the power. And I'm like, yeah, you need to give the employees the power because I want the upward feedback. 
Yeah, it's going to be everything. It takes a village. Like it takes the village to work anywhere. There's a reason why companies are not made by one person. So why would one person then be able to decide whether or not that other person is being effective in their role? Yeah, all it has to be an aggregate. And you're so right from, you know, from the perspective of kind of being the only person that might look like you or the only person that's in your position in a leadership team, for example, it can cause so many different things because people have enough imposter syndrome as it is. Yeah. And then to then visually see that maybe there isn't anybody else that's like you, it can only exacerbate it unless you actively work towards it and have to condition yourself not to self-sabotage. Because what's interesting is like when you are the person in power, rarely do you think of yourself as having power over this person. Yeah. And that's like where it's complicated on both sides. And it's like you have to just acknowledge that your employees have this sort of view of you and it's a very, very real part of how willing they are to express themselves and to be honest with them, with you, yeah. because of the, where that comes in. Yeah, it's just so fascinating to think like, rarely do we ever think we're the ones who have the power. Like, I can't, I can't imagine. Yeah. It's like, I'm the one in power. I determine everything, right? It's, it's so weird. Yeah, it's fascinating. But I think like the the thought of like power dynamics in the workplace is always repeating in all of our heads and kind of like a filter that we have to filter through if we're going to get feedback, if we're going to behave a certain way. I think all of us are unconsciously thinking about the power dynamics in the workplace, which historically has really been employer driven. Employer leaders, managers have the power, employees, you have none. And I think we're seeing a really interesting shift in HR where employees are like, whoa, 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 I have opinions too. And like disengagement's going down. I feel like I wish the scales were always equal, but it always feels like the employer, managers, leaders have more. Yeah. And the way it even just shows up in like the basic things with however many times you're in a meeting and someone asks if you have a question or if anyone has an opinion to share and people might not share with the whole group, but like they'll chat their friend. Yeah. Where it's like, it's a lot of power dynamics really show up in the conversations that don't actually happen where they're yes. supposed to happen. Yeah. And that is like, that's that was the behavior that when I was working with my coach, she was like, think about the times that, Someone has said something that you disagreed with, but you didn't openly disagree in the meeting and you like slapped your friend about it. She's like, think about how many times that's probably happening in your phone meetings now that you're where you are that you don't even realize what's happening. And she's like, how do you help those people chat? Even if they don't want to talk, how do they come to you first? It's a constant living thing. Yeah, I think it's like HR leaders and even just like leaders and companies, we have to remember that power dynamics exist whether unconsciously or very consciously. So if you ever see someone in a meeting who isn't willing to share their thoughts, if you see that your employees are like unhappy about one specific manager and you can't figure out why and you like you're trying to understand, there's like a lot to think through there is like how how are employees facing this? And I think like showing empathy to the fact that they sometimes feel very powerless in the workplace could help you as an HR team figure out how do I better manage the relationships at work with employees between employees, managers, leaders. Yeah. What can someone do when their coworker is super difficult to work with? We all have one. If you don't have one person in your workplace that instantly comes to mind when I say this, it's you. You're the person. <laughs> you're, the, <laughs> you're the problem. You're the problem. Oh, it's me. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that first it comes with sort of just acknowledging that someone is difficult to work with because we can sometimes, I don't know, I'm the type where I tend to live in denial. Like I'll be like, I don't know, they're not driving me crazy or they're not difficult. It's, it's just me. And sometimes, you know, sometimes it is sort of ways that we kind of like create our own barriers that can make any situation sort of difficult. But what I think is important to kind of remember is that 
if any relationship is 50-50 or it should be 50-50, right? Yeah. So there's pieces that you might be contributing, but there are also pieces that this person is contributing to. And it's really important to kind of think about things in the terms of emotional intelligence and really sort of sit with when, you, when you're working with someone who's difficult or really reflect on what is it that makes that person difficult? And is it things that make you worse or is it things that make you better? So sometimes, for example, I'm the type where I'm a visionary. I'm a creative. I love when like I have an idea and people are like, yes, and yes, and yes, and. And then when I get to someone who's like, well, but I'm like, hmm. even though they're right, like even though they're doing their job and it's what it's supposed to be. And I've had to learn to kind of be like, hey, they're not trying to like take the wind out of my sails. So let me think about how I can react differently yeah. to this person so that I'm not then immediately shutting out what they're about to say next, because they're being brave enough to be challenging to create sort of healthy friction. And that's something that's like worth it. Now, if they're creating unhealthy friction, then it's important to kind of be able to lean into being able to drive conflict in a healthy way to sort of say, hey, you're kind of you're kind of being a jerk here. And this is something that you need to understand about your behavior that needs to change. Yeah. Oh, someone made a good point in the chat saying to find difficult because they've been called that as a person of color in certain environments. Ooh. And I think- that does happen a lot. What There's that stat that like black women yeah. are viewed as like angry or difficult in the workplace when they're voicing their opinions, which is like a deep unconscious bias. And so I think that is like even really hard too. It's like educating leadership on using those words very carefully and yeah. how often women are given more personality driven feedback mm-hmm. than men. It's like a yeah. very interesting stat as well. And so like women are more often told like, oh, you're so fun to work with. You're so nice. Like you're so kind. Whereas men are told you achieved X, Y, and Z, like great. Yeah. Job. So that's yeah. just something to think about if you are in that position where you are a person of color in the workplace and you're being called difficult. And you, if you have a good relationship with the person calling you that, I would spend time explaining to them like the weight of their words and how often, like if you are a woman that is used to get personality feedback is used against you more often than for you. I wrote about this in the newsletter this past week about difficult, what makes someone difficult to work with. And I think a lot of it comes down to working styles. And I laid out like five different working styles, like structured, analytical, collaborative, creative. And I see the most conflict when it comes up in the workplace when it's two people with very different working styles. Exactly. Mm-hmm. What you said, Christy, the person, the, Rebecca, why do I keep calling you Christy? What is going People on? People go to speak to you all the time. We're basically one mind. <laughs> Not even. I haven't even met Christy. I don't know why this keeps happening to me. Rebecca, I'm so sorry. <laughs> Maybe I need more caffeine. The interesting thing is like when people, when you put a structured person with a creative person, it almost always ends in like tension between the two of them because one is like structure driven. The other one wants to be like a free thought person. Yeah. So the two of them, like, can you imagine them working on something? It's like, that is going to be so difficult because how are, they're on this one, how are the two of them going to get to common ground? And so when I say difficult, I think that what, what it more means is like, it's hard to get to common ground with the person. Yeah, I think that's a good way to define it or a good way to sort of, you know, have the shared kind of view of it. And I agree that, you know, it's good to sort of reset when the feedback, when you're getting feedback that could be used against you and it's behavioral and, you know, and also kind of know, like, I think it's important to also know what feedback is helpful and what's bullshit. Mm -hmm. Like, I've always gotten feedback that I'm just like, okay, let me go internally and sort of be like, okay, where's the piece of this that, you know, I can think about for myself or, or change, but then also just know like, screw it. Like, I don't, I like, okay, they say that I'm difficult or that I'm annoying or that I'm too assertive and I'm just like, I don't care. I think it's kind of knowing 
that sometimes if someone is giving you feedback that that you are difficult, it just means that they're not ready for your ideas yet and they're afraid of them. And they're afraid of what it is that that you have to think of and challenge of their their worldview and their concept. There's a lot more change happening now in the workplace for better or for worse, because employees are now getting more power, which is nice. So like, you know, when it is sort of that concept of being difficult, I think if you're just in a company where you're just following orders and you're just saying yes to everything and you're not bringing conflict and you're not getting feedback that you're difficult, then it's almost like there's so much missed opportunity for where you can assert yourself more. I think the last thing about like working relationships and what makes them hard is like we inherently don't trust one another. Like uh, you don't meet somebody and instantly you're like, I trust them 100% because you are yeah. not. So the thing that makes relationships hard in the workplace is like you have to learn to trust each other. And when somebody is acting difficult, usually if you keep asking them questions about why they're behaving this way, you ultimately will get to the fact that they don't trust you to either yeah. get work done, to be done in a way that they would do it. And so yeah. finding a way to like bridge that gap with each other on like, here's what I'm responsible for. Here's what you're responsible for. How do we trust each other? How do we build that? It comes with time. It really yeah. does. That's what I was going to say. I think it's like one of those things that companies don't give enough time to building trust. Yeah. And I don't mean attention, but they just don't, you know, because even if you think about it now, whatever you want to call it, the great resignation, quiet quitting, whatever it was, when everyone was sort of changing jobs the last few years, newsflash, people have been changing jobs like this for the last like 10 years. This is not just a new thing, but it just means that there are a lot of new relationships in the workplace now. And people, you know, have not, the average tenure of companies has gone down because everybody's been moving around, which is fine, right? It gives you a chance to kind of reset a lot of things, but it means that it's going to take time for teams to trust each other because that only happens with time and with results and with these things. And if if you're just kind of bringing someone onto a team and just taking for granted that they just trust you, you're doing it wrong. But if you're also just joining a team and you're not leading with trust first, like I'd rather lead with trust and be proven wrong than not trust someone and be proven. Trust but verify. Was it true yeah. that trust but verify? Was it? Yeah, true? I think so. Oh, also cool. Okay. I think it was true. Yeah. Welcome to history. <laughs> back on my bed. Here we go. And next we're going to talk about our curly hair products. Just kidding. <laughs> but no, but now we We don't, but it's like, I think like I've had, I've some of my best friends now in life. Like I try really hard to remember what it was like when I first met them. Yeah. And what it is like now. And then in the workplace, I also try to do that where I'm like, I am just meeting this person. They don't know me. Like, yeah. how do we give them the trust that, like, we are going to work together and work together well before we yeah. jump into a project and then we're at each other's throats with different working styles? I'm a creative. They're structured. It doesn't work out well. That's just something to think about, like, asking folks when you start working with them, like, what's your preferred working style? Yeah, I think it's a really good point. It's so powerful. And if the person can't answer the question, that's really a them problem, not a you problem. But also you should just give them examples. Yeah. People work like this. Creative people work like this. Collaborative people work like this and see what they tell you. And then yeah. you figure out how do I tailor, how can we tailor both of our approaches to find our common ground? Yeah. I love that. Also could talk about this forever. Next. <laughs> Here it comes. This one's a good one. What What are common mistakes you see people making when it comes to relationships at work? I don't know if this is a controversial, but it's one that I will stand by. People at work don't need to be your friends first. So when you're there, like everybody's there to do a job or you're there, like you're getting paid you're, you know, you're there to achieve something. 
And that doesn't mean that that person is going to be your best friend. It doesn't mean that you have to agree with this person. It doesn't mean if me, you know, you don't have to hate every second that you're spending with this person. That's a completely different type of bucket. But I see people put too much emphasis on being friends with a coworker that they then sacrifice the quality of their work to preserve that relationship. What I think is really important is understanding the priorities and really being real about what the context is of your relationship. And if you end up friendly while you work together, that's fine. You know, that's fine. That's good. That's, you know, you want to have some sort of a connection, obviously, with the people that you work with. But putting the friend bucket before the coworker bucket is where I've seen the biggest mistake. Yeah. Oh, man. This, like the, I just watched the Kelly Ripa and she, I think she has her husband as her co-host now. Oh, and yeah. About best friends at work, like having a best friend at work actually like makes you more engaged. It's been proven that it like makes the environment safer if you have a friend yeah. about at work, which is kind of wild. Um, but the biggest mistake I make is uh, the biggest mistake I see people making. Wow, maybe I just unconsciously told you the biggest mistake ever <laughs> is assuming someone else's boundaries. Like, yeah, assume, like I'm going to talk about things that are, are deeply personal to me, my political beliefs, my approach to sex, drugs, and rock and roll, whatever. Mm-hmm. And then the other person is like, whoa, 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 yeah, cool with me. And I don't want to know that about you. Yeah. So I think like as much as possible, again, I keep using the example of my closest friends. One of my closest friends now, I used to manage her. And the first thing she told me was, I have a strict line between work and personal life. I don't want you to know anything about my personal life. Yeah. And I said, hey, I respect that. When you yeah. kind of tell me things about your personal life, I'm here to listen to them. Yeah. I'm happy to meet your friends, know your dad's first name. Like now I know all those things about her. But at the time she was very clear. Like, yeah, no, I this don't. Is, I don't yeah. And I'm yeah. a very open, vocal and honest person. I will tell everybody about everything I'm dealing with in my life because it's <laughs> me and I'm human. Yeah. 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 It made me stop when I was managing her and pause and think to myself, like, I need to start asking people what their boundaries are because maybe they don't want me to know about their significant other problems. Maybe they don't. Yeah. Want they're going through in their family. And so I think that actually ended up making my relationship with her much stronger. I think that's good to kind of think about it in terms of boundaries too, because you're bringing up a really good point. Like I know that when I was in HR, a lot of what, especially when I was starting any new HR role, I would make the rounds, right? Because you want to meet people and you want to start to build relationships. And I would go right into questions like, you know, well, how do you like your job here? You know, how do you like your manager? Just things like that. And because I'm more of a, I'm more of a, I separate business and work, but I guess a little, not quite where it's like strict buckets, but there's like very little leakage at first because, you know, I've been in, I think, honestly, think it was probably my uh, listener background that traumatized me working at an agency where like literally someone could start and then be fired within a week. So I would be like, I don't know anything about anybody because like they're probably going to be gone in a month and it's just like self-preservation. So something I'm I'm constantly working through and, you know, knowing that it's okay know things about your coworkers if they want you to know them. But I remember like it had to be sort of a conscious effort for me to ask people about sort of their person and about, you know, more personal things, letting them lead. I think when it comes to going back to power dynamics, it's like let the person in less power lead the conversation and you follow where they because if someone comes in and they want to like let you know everything about their life, then you don't have to reciprocate when you do have to listen. And it is sort of important because they're saying these are the things that make up who I am. And they, there is no such thing as work-life balance, right? It's all, we live one life and we work many jobs, but they're integrated. And so if they're coming to you saying like, these are things that are important to me, 
then it's good to acknowledge that even if you, but you don't have to reciprocate it all yourself too. Yeah. When you said, let them lead and you follow, the first thing that popped into my head was the Gilmore Girls theme song. <laughs> oh my God. I'm actually rewatching that back to the TV show. <laughs> I have my husband to do it. My husband loves Gilmore Girls now. <laughs> I love that. I love yeah. that. That's pretty wild. Um, that's such yeah. a good point though, like really reading the room and the person you are interacting with and like helping them mm-hmm. understand what they want. Also controversial, like how do you feel about people dating at work? Every time someone asks me my HR thought on this, I'm like, as long as it's there's no power dynamic where they report to you and that thing happens, you are actually free to do that. So I've worked a lot with my coach to not hold other people to my own yardstick. So I would never date at work. <laughs> like I'm like, uh, it's like, because you know what it is. I think the part that makes it complicated is I've been in situations where specifically in like a failed environment, like everybody starts with the same sales team together. They work together. You spend a lot of time together. You're usually fairly in your career. So your social life is very much integrated with your work life. Totally get. Then you start to become friends. But then what happens if one of you is up for promotion? Mm-hmm. Then it starts to become complicated. And I personally, I never wanted to put myself in a position to ever have to navigate that. Like, I'm like, I don't want, I don't want my relationship to ever impact my job. Yeah. Um, naively, you know, you learn as you get older, like, it's like, okay, well, you know, you have to learn how to like navigate life as a couple. It's you do choose a partner. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I think that to each their own, agree with you about power dynamics element, you know, as long as it's sort of a mutually consensual and beneficial relationship in your personal life, but not something that crosses over. But I couldn't, I couldn't imagine not being able to to like not leave work because you're hanging out with your coworkers. Yeah. I, can't be- I don't know. People spend a lot of time at work and no one really talks about like romance in the workplace, but it's on the rise. Apparently you spend every eight hours a day. It's like something yeah. interesting that I've just been observing for the last few years where people, especially with like that co-host that got fired for dating. Like it's just very interesting. Every company has their own dating policy. It's actually yeah. one of the questions I get a lot too. When people know I'm in HR, they'll be like, Oh my God. Yeah. I'm here. yeah it's like, do you fire people? And the second is like, are you okay with your coworkers dating? I'm like, wow, these are the two questions people are coming to. Right there. They're going right in. <laughs> They're going right in. Um, yeah. Moving on, the final question, and I think my favorite one, <laughs> how do you handle a leader who has zero EQ? So EQ, the lovely emotional intelligence or emotional quotient. In my experience with any leader that doesn't have, that is sort of lacking EQ. And I'm kind of speaking from the side of being in HR with leaders that lacked EQ and now working on the client side where my client might be like begging me for help with like their CFO or their CEO or whoever it is that's sort of that main decision maker for them that they need help with. It's an important piece to think about how you self-assess or self-regulate to meet them where they Though. A lot of zero EQ or what people think of as zero EQ, a lot of it comes from the way that they act and not really, you know, you talk about communication styles and it's kind of like it's someone's reaction to how someone approaches you or approaches your your conversation. And if someone's lacking EQ, I always try to go at it first with clear facts and data because I'm like, okay. If the emotional side of it is something that you either don't care about, it's not registering, which which is fun, right? There's a lot of there are a lot of reasons why the monet might be challenged with EQ, but it's like bringing it to a language that is relevant to them and that understands to help that be the baseline of how you drive whatever challenge it is that you're trying to work through with them. And I think if you do have a high level of EQ yourself, it's really important to go inward first to really 
understand, self-assess, self-regulate to form that empathy to then go outward to kind of work on others, right? Because like you have to work on yourself before you can work on others. And empathy is truly that ability to meet that person where they are. And if you're saying that they don't have EQ, then you have to use your own EQ to empathize with them to get them where you need them to be. EQ is fascinating because I think as an HR person, like so putting on my, my HR perspective on this, I have sometimes been on teams where I'm the only one who has a high level of EQ. And then yeah. everybody looks to me as the HR leader to explain everyone's feelings. Yeah. And I'm always like, that's tough. I do not want to play this role because I can't be like the feelings fairy. Like I need to be able to like help you all understand and like you need to gauge what yeah. you're going to react to. I also think like even I think of EQ and I'm like writing employee comms as well. Mm-hmm. How is this going to make someone feel? And like so yeah. few people think about how their actions make others feel. Yeah. Intent versus impact. Yeah. And so it's just. I have handled leaders who have zero EQ. The, the way I the way I approach it is I'm I tell them, let me explain to you how this is going to make someone feel. And then yeah. and when they're like, oh, I hate the feelings. I don't want to talk about the feelings. I'm like, okay, if you don't want to talk about the feelings, let me tell you how the feelings impact engagement or retention or their ability to do their job really well. I bet you yeah. start worrying about their feelings when you realize that their feelings actually impact their productivity, which then impacts your profitability. Yeah. So yeah. Just like trying to speak the language the leader has while also sharing with them, like, this is how someone's going to feel. And then sometimes I even go a bit of a step further and say, like, let's talk about their perspective and their lived experience. Because yeah. there's a huge gap between the person and the leader and like lived experience. I find it even harder to get them, the leader, to connect to the person's feelings. Well, yeah. Why should they feel that way? Why is a woman offended that she's getting personality feedback? I'm like, are you, like, you don't know how deep this goes. Are you, like, are you kidding me right now? Yeah. Yeah. Are you fucking with me? There's, yeah. There's a lot going on in the chat. People are talking about this. Like, I do think that leaders with low EQ sometimes are able to recognize that and then go out and hire a team that very much can make them more well-rounded. Yes. I think that that's a good, it's a good way. It's a good like thing to point out. And there was someone said in the chat that having zero EQ or kind of that type of feedback is also really challenging if you're dealing with neurodiversity. And I've had situations before where, you know, trying to navigate workplace workplace relationships where I've had a neurodiverse team where they processed emotions differently and, you know, understood it differently. And and it was a different just experience that they had. And I think it's kind of, if you really are trying to build an inclusive environment where everybody belongs, Mm -hmm. then those with zero EQ, quote unquote, it's important to understand like, well, then how do they, how do they experience life? How do they live life? And how can I meet them where they are so that I don't have to, so that it's not something that's held against them and it's not something I have to hold them back. Because I've had, I've had really, really great leaders, uh, you know, who were neurodiverse and EQ was not their strong suit. But like you mentioned, they hired a team around them that helped to sort of either handle communication to support the different things that they're trying to do. And again, it kind of goes back to the concept of no company is built and run by one person. Yeah. I mean, you know, some are, but I mean, at the level that we, that we're kind of working, we're working in larger companies and it's kind of knowing where each person's strength is in a cycle or, you know, wheel and not just like you have to do it all. And this one person has to do it all. I love that. Somebody asked, and I feel like we should get to this because it's a really good one. How Mm -hmm. does this relate to the trauma dumping like, like the staff does on their HR team? And I have a really quick and good answer for this, I think. Like 
I've been there like height of the pandemic, employees coming to me every hour needing to tell me about what was happening in their lives. And it got to be like really um, like a lot for me. Like I couldn't handle it myself. And so what I started telling employees was like, look, I'm I'm also your HR person. I'm here to help you navigate your life at work. Outside of work, like I'm not a certified therapist. What I think could really help you would be going out and like using one of these three resources we offer employees to talk about the things that you were dealing with. I like, I want to make your life great at work, but like I can't also be your therapist to talk you through like some serious things that you were dealing with. Yeah, I think it's a really good point because you also are a human being with your own the whole limitations. And, and it's it's almost like if you are trying too hard to be a mental health therapist or support for someone, and if that's not your field and that's not your certification, you can make things a lot worse for that person, for yourself. Like, and no one goes in with that intention. I mean, I hope not. But sometimes it's kind of just like learning and acknowledging your own boundaries and limitations and then understanding what resources are there. I mean, if you're a company that provides those resources, I think that's great. There are companies that don't, though. So it's also, I think, kind of, you know, helping people understand what are the things that I'm trying to process that I might need external help to process. And then having, like, I've always had, you know, luckily where we are, you know, SkillCycle, we're able to provide resources for employees. And that was one of the things that Christy and I were just like, this this is extremely important because they're humans or we need to humans. But I've always had a list of, you know, free resources that, you know, kind of they're, they start the process of kind of helping someone understand what it is that they need. But I think that it's, it's really easy for people to forget that HR is also a human and has all limitations. It's not like an anonymous sort of field of stuff. It's like, we are all just humans trying our best here. And that's a tough, it's a tough one. I'm so, I got to to you for working in HR through COVID and to everybody here because I'm glad that I but I had my cry for help and started a company before I did that because I don't know how any of you all have done it. You all are heroes. Got a lot of white hairs for it. Um, someone says something <laughs> beautiful in the chat. Um, low EQ isn't bad. Sometimes your brain just works different and you are trying your best to understand. And I really love that. And Rebecca, you made that point about neurodiversity and how they process emotions. Like, absolutely agree. I think when it is bad is when the leader knows they have no EQ and then they don't try anything to like... Yeah actually understand what's happening like yeah or they just don't want to process at all yeah met people who are just like no i don't do feelings no i don't want to know about them i don't care about them yeah so it's like know when you can yeah and i think a growth mindset for a lot of those leaders is what's really important and that's the hardest thing to sometimes encourage in a leadership team or from leaders who are more stubborn that way but yeah it is kind of helping leaders to be better but whose responsibility is that? Because it always falls on HR. Mine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, now we're on to the fun part, some live Q&A. So here we go. How do you resolve conflict in a workplace that will not actually talk about the conflict, but will provide excuses for the poor behaviors in question? Unfortunately, it always comes back to someone to keep the conversations grounded in sort of the single source of truth or the single source of challenge. And... I think it does become the hardest part because conflict is emotional and whether you're avoiding it or if you're leaning right into it and, you know, you're all about it, but there has to be someone in the conflict conversation that keeps it grounded in that sort of source of truth and hold people accountable, even if it's just in conversation to acknowledge, even if you're just acknowledging that your behavior is only exacerbating the issue before you can even figure out how to fix it, 
I think calling that out as a piece of the conflict is important because that's natural. That's normal, right? Like it's normal for people to sort of make make a conflict about something else entirely. But there does have to be sort of a, I mean, you can have a conflict framework that you can also lean on to. Like we have a conflict framework that if we're going into it, we'll pull it up and we'll say like, okay, where does this fall in the framework and in the bucket? Let's use this tool to help us best navigate Conflict is so healthy. Like it can be really healthy. It can really push an environment forward. It can breed innovation ideas. Um, and when people avoid it, I'm honestly just fascinated by them as humans. But then when they point out the bad behavior, what I would do is say, let me explain to you the impact of that behavior. Mm-hmm. And then through the impact, I really solve, I really try to solve the conflict. Just yeah. here's how it's showing up in your workplace. That I found to be incredibly powerful. Like when people hear the word conflict, they almost tense up. And so I try to make it never, I never say those words. I just say, hey, let's talk about the impact this is having. How does yeah. that make you feel? How does that make this person feel? This is my peer mediator days, certified or <laughs> great. Ooh, I love that. Well, you know what it is that I take that out of them. Yes. In some way. It's just like, yes. let's see how this shows up in the world. Agree or disagree. Let's walk through. We're, we all associate the things with ourselves. They've shown that we take our feedback and we associate it with like who we believe we are as a person. And yeah. So when it yeah. comes to conflict, I try to always make sure I remove any of the words that say you did, I did, no. you did, and instead the dogs are losing it. <laughs> Sorry, you got no. I love that. I try to make it about like the impact, and then I feel people are like, oh, okay. The impact is it makes it makes it hard to finish this project. The impact is like everyone feels disengaged when they, there's no ownership. The impact is like people are afraid to speak their mind if there's always like negative things being said. So I think there are a lot of ways around a ton of good conflict resolution stuff. Um, Question, any conflict resolution book or podcast recommendations? Ooh, Fierce Conversations by Susan Scott. That is my favorite. It's actually, it's not, I mean, it is about conflict, but it's about sort of having conversations that matter. I mean, we've done sort of an entire critical conversations training that's loosely based on some of the frameworks that are in that book. Because it's all about creating a safe space for conflict first and knowing, kind of like you said, how to have conversation and conflict that's not accusatory and is about the problem at hand. And it's about navigating that conversation together while also giving a space for everyone to process how they feel about whatever that conflict is. Because sometimes it's like I've gone to people and I've given them feedback that they didn't like to hear. And you need to be able to be open to it. But it's okay if you first react to be like, what the, like, really? And it gets, you can leave space for that reaction too, because it's part of, it's almost like a grief process, right? It's like, that's the denial. Then it's like, in order to move through that, then we have to kind of get there. But there's conversations all the way. Getting that on my list. Um, also recently, Jacob Espinosa, another work week creator who writes a newsletter called Leaders Lens, where he talks about a lot of this stuff. He recommended nonviolent communication. I'm like, I'm going to have to read this book because I write so many internal comms as HR. And so I was like, nonviolent communication. I wonder if like, I just choose violence every day. So I was like, I can't read it. <laughs> <laughs> non bottle and fire. I am set at all on fire girl all the time. Um, okay. Next question. As a small team, we have trouble surfacing internal challenges to our leader, and there often isn't the space to do so. Any thoughts on the idea of HR for HR? Ooh. Oh, HR needs HR. <laughs> yeah, but we never get it because it's just weird when you're trying to give feedback and kind of rat out your team members. I know. So I think it's like when it comes to creating the space to navigate, you know, to navigate those conversations, I think that unfortunately it is sort of what HR is built to do, whether we like it or not. 
And where we find, I mean, so even working at skills, like a lot of our stakeholders are HR. You know, we do work with CTOs, we do work with heads of sales, but they never come to us with the same types of challenges that our HR stakeholders do and our HR clients. And we almost act as HR for HR by providing either that coach or even just the way that my team partners with them. And it's almost like, I think one of the most important things that you can do in HR is have a community, something like this, like, you know, have sort of the the people that are not necessarily in your company that can tell you that you're not losing your mind. What you're seeing is true and what you're seeing is incorrect. And it's helpful to sort of have that external perspective to give you those built-in books, whether it's a community like this, a tool, you know, a coach, a mentor, but it is really important to have that. Almost yeah. more so, the same way founders always are, they're in, you know, they're in the founders' communities, sales leaders are always in their own sales communities. Like HR needs to do a lot of sort of networking within themselves. But I think that, you know, folks like you have done a really good job at building community for people to be able to have those resources. Yeah, hey, I and I'm not saying that. I say that when you're on here too. <laughs> Thank you. Becca, you're the best. Don't make me cry. Um, <laughs> I, lo- I love that community is so needed. HR for HR rarely ever exists. Like we also all need our safe spaces. The interesting thing about this question about like surfacing internal challenges to our leader, because it's a small team. One thing that I found works really well, uh, retros. After you do any process, a training, an event, be like, hey, we should do a retro. We should like look back on like what went well and how we get better for the future. That way your team can like actually get together, surface the challenges around one specific thing that's happening. And then maybe it becomes easier because as a team, you're focusing on improvement, not trying to like really elevate those challenges to the max and making that leader like uncomfortable. No HR team is perfect. Like if you've, someone has, I'm not the perfect HR team, they're lying. Yeah, they're the problem. (laughs) There's a problem. We're dealing with too much. But safe spaces are very much needed for HR too. I have never worked anywhere where I've had HR for HR. And it even felt really icky to me to go tell my like HRBP, the one place I had it, like I'm struggling with our HR team. Yeah, I know what you mean. It's very fascinating. Um, Okay. How do you address employee alliances that fuel and prolong conflict? Ooh, I love this question. (laughs) my soul is like I have like pointing out the toxic yeah yeah I've been there where um people go advocate for their side in quiet conversations and are like let's all band together and then go to this leader and do this thing and it's like honestly it's pretty toxic behavior and so like I almost wonder if there's a way to address it without calling it like toxic but be like hey we're a team we're all trying to solve the same thing this is not a one side or this side. It's a we're all in this together kind of side. Yeah. I know it's cheesy and really campy, but like I don't that, think it's cheesy. This is really tough. And it's like yeah. very, very fast. Yeah. I kind of look at it as, I mean, I think about my time in HR and what were sort of the main toolkits that I had at my disposal. Like if I had a finite amount of tools, how can I then sort of MacGyver these to apply to different situations? And I think one of the most valuable one is a change management framework and just the concept of change management in general, which I think that they need to rebrand it or rename it because it just sounds so unexciting, but it's literally the core of any successful thing. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and when you have, you know, I think that if you do have employees that are sort of forming these alliances, it's almost important to kind of get them alone and talk to them one-on-one and assess sort of who is really fueling this and where is it coming from? Because usually what it means is that they're they're resisting change of some sort, 
whether they're you know trying to hold on to a status quo while the company is trying to shift direction, or they're trying to shift direction where the company is like, we need to stay steady. At. And there's a range of experiences within that. But when you do have an employee that's sort of fueling this conflict and it's leading to animosity, first give them the benefit of the doubt. And I know that that's really, really hard, but you know, ask them where this is coming from rather than assuming that you know. Because most people are reacting out of fear or self-preservation. Most people don't have consciously malicious intent, right? And I think looking at them from the lens of almost like a stoplight exercise, like who's my red lights, my yellow lights, my green lights. Usually if you're seeing someone sort of fuel these, you know, these things, they're usually either a yellow light or a red light when it comes to accepting a vision or a change or a direction. Your yellow lights, you can usually move to green with a little bit of help and a little bit of support. It's about understanding sort of that bigger picture. Your red lights probably have to go. That's like the tough part. And there's a certain point in anyone's career where you have to sort of, you know, think about like, okay, am I the red light at this company now? And if so, what do I do about that? And usually if you're so, if you're that adverse to what the company's doing, then it's probably not a place for you to be, whether that's your choice or someone else's. Yeah. I think this one is like very tricky to navigate. Mm -hmm. And every time I've been there where like employees start like, forming little groups to go against each other even a team does that yeah it always ends badly yeah and the conflict yeah. never gets resolved and so sometimes yeah. like like having an external person also moderate or facilitate like yeah things or framing it around like how we as a team get better rather yeah. than this versus that could be really helpful here yeah and so many questions i want to do one last one and then we'll jump to like the wrap up, which we have like a lot of important stuff to tell you all about, but advice on holding your own as a young manager among other managers and or managing employees who are older than you. This one is tough because I'll never forget the first time I managed someone who was older than me. Now I think my whole team is older than me now that I think about it. So I'm like, that's kind of like funny the way that that, that flips. But I think, you know, a lot of it when you're trying to hold your own as a young manager, it's about kind of thinking about those moments when you're pulling yourself back. And trying to understand your own motivations. Why? Is it because you're lacking confidence? Are you self-doubting because of imposter syndrome? Are you not sure if the thing that you're trying to hold your own on is the right thing? I just confused too many propositions. But it's like it's sort of this usually coming from sort of this space of doubt. And I think, you know, if you are trying, and this is so hard. This is this takes so much practice. I think that's like the thing that. I will say about every piece of these conversations is like, this is just like, oh, you do this one thing and then you're, then you're fine. It's yeah. like, these are skills you're building constantly and toning your whole entire life and, uh, or at least your whole entire career. But, you know, I think it's like when you're finding that if you're struggling to manage someone who's older than you, think about why. Is it because they're making it difficult or are you making it difficult in your own brain? Because our brains love to self-sabotage. And find what the actual truth is and start with that as, as a navigation place. I think being open and honest about where you are with yourself is probably the most important place to start. And selfishly, it's why it's the thing that I lean on my coach for the most is like, how do I hold that? Yeah. <laughs> I will also never forget the first time I managed someone older than me. It was really, um, it was my limiting belief. Like I was like, I shouldn't manage this person because I'm so much younger than them. And when I stopped and asked myself, like, why, I actually became a better manager for that person. And I just yeah. built a strong relationship with them based on, like, trust. I was like, I'm your manager. I'm here to support you, advocate for you, and give you feedback and growth. 
And they really yeah. respected that. And they were just, they just happened to be older than me and wanted to be an IC forever. Yeah. And I was like, yeah. great. And that's okay. Yeah, it's totally fine. As long as there's yeah. like a baseline of respect, here's what you can expect from me. Here's what I can expect from you. And you build the trust that way. I really feel like then you as a manager come into your own, right? You'd let yeah. go of that belief that I'm too young. I, I'm too inexperienced. I shouldn't be managing them. And instead you think I'm here to help them. I'm here to support them. I'm here to give them feedback. And I think it's also important to kind of really let go of the idea of perfection that's where we can find the hardest time sort of folding around because we think like, oh, what I have to say might not be perfect. But like HR is the only department that expects perfection from itself. <laughs> and all day, every day. Like if you look at like any sales meeting you're in, it's always like, oh, here are the reasons why like we're struggling, but like it's fine. Finance is like, here's everything that could go wrong, but it's fine. HR is always like, everything's perfect and I've accounted for everything. And it's like, you hear all of our anxiety coming in that we're trying to justify everything that we do. But like, you don't have to be perfect. And that's why as you're holding your own, it's okay to be wrong and still hold your own. But it's what you do with that, how you learn from that, and then how you work through that is what matters. I do really hold myself to that standard of perfection. I'm going to think about that all day. How are it? Oh, my God. I'm the team that shows up. and I'm like, I've crossed all my T's. I've got all my I's. I've thought through 15 different scenarios that could go wrong. And here's what I'm going to do in case X, Y, and Z happens. Yeah. I need to work on that myself, honestly. Yeah, I've got a good uh, blog post for you. Reading them, I was actually, I heard a really good talk on Monday at the this HR retreat that I was at. And I would, let me tell you, I was floored when I left. And I send these things all the time. <laughs> All's that. Oh, I can't wait for this LinkedIn post. Okay, some final takeaways. Rebecca, I'll let you have this first one. This is probably the hardest one, but changing behaviors is absolutely crucial. And it's like what I was talking about, where anything that we've said, there's no silver bullet to any of these challenges or managing relationships or anything. It's why... There have been decades of books and research about people and all of their wonder and how difficult it is. But changing the things that you do and how you interact with others is probably the most important part to eventually get to and helping others change behaviors too. Because that's the way that our behaviors are how we show up at work and how we show up for each other. It's almost like even if in your head you're still working through something, how you act is the thing that other people experience. And that's the part that's really, really important. It's why I will always work with a coach because that's their whole thing is helping to change your behavior and holding you accountable for that either when you don't want to. That's what I was going to say. Like, do you want to talk for a bit about like skill cycle and why, how you can utilize skill cycle to help with that? Because I have had the biggest professional growth in my life when I have worked with an external coach. And yeah. the thing that people think is like, they come to me and as internal HR and they're like, you need to coach me to be better. And I'm like, no. Yeah. You need yeah. to go find a coach to coach you to be better, but it is a privilege yeah. to have one. And so I think hearing a little bit from Rebecca about what they're building at Skill Cycle could be really helpful for everyone here as a resource. Yeah. No, thank you. I mean, the value of an external coach is, you know, something that you could, I could talk about for hours at a time. But the part that I think is the most important is like, it's partly about changing your behaviors and holding you accountable, but it's also a relationship that is void of power dynamics. Because your coach is just there to be your advocate. They're there to show up for you and help you work through the things that you're trying to work through. They don't have a say in your promotions. They don't have a say in your life. They don't have a say in anything. They're just there for you in that moment. And I think the most amazing part, a lot of what we're building here at Skillsightball is to, you know, we started as a coaching platform and that's still is sort of the hub and heart of everything that we do because it's the most personal experience that you can go through. And having a coach that sort of sees you, who you build trust with, who can really help you push through things 
is the thing that makes your, it makes your whole entire experience at work different. But it is a privilege to have one in a lot of ways because they can be very expensive, which is why we've built our platform and our community the way that we have. It's also typically something that is very much associated with a very specific demographic. It's usually a lot of like old white men who've had historical access to coaching. And it's why it's perpetuated a lot of issues. And so when we built our coach community, we really took a a very intentional perspective on DEI to make sure that there's representation from every single community that you can imagine, even if someone doesn't have a coaching certification. So when we say we want to increase access to coaching, it's all to coaching as a career. So we'll help people get certified and subsidized certifications. And it's why we work with so many different companies. We work with a huge hundred-year-old publishing company full of like very highly educated white collar workers. And we also work with a water treatment plant and a lot of them have the same coaches. And it's because of that accessibility that's just like, it changes your whole experience. And I think like my favorite part about working with my coach is the session is when, and she tells me the shit that I don't want to hear. And the stuff that's really difficult because she's the only one that can say that to me where I don't then feel threatened that I don't think, oh my God, is this what everybody's saying about me? That in and of itself is like, I'm mad to talk about this forever, but that's super important. And then what should people, so we always do a post-event email. What are giving people on our post-event email? Yes, to check now. So everybody who attends this event and who's registered for this event is eligible for three free coaching sessions on Field Cycle. So you'll get access to the platform. You can go in, create your account. It's going to ask you some sort of very, you know, very basic questions to help you understand, like, what is it that I want to work on? How do I want to work on it? And it's going to take you to the coach marketplace. The thing that makes us different is that you actually get interview coaches before you pick one. So there's no AI matching. It's no just like sitting there reading a bio. You actually have conversations with folks that then choose to work with them. So you can kind of like peel it out, see what different styles are. And then, yeah, everyone gets three free coaching sessions and it really gives you a chance to sort of experience the process and hopefully help you navigate different dynamics, you know, within the workplace. And I know, Heather, you have stuff that's coming up and going on too that they can work really well. They can partner really well together. (laughs) We're so excited. I I can't wait to offer that to everybody. I'm pretty pumped. I'm taking my three free coaching sessions, just saying. But with that, we should wrap up. Loss Reiner, communication. When you're thinking about all these managing relationships, think about your comms. Sometimes you negatively write a sentence without even thinking it's negative. Again, is my verbal, is my communication violent? I'm going to find out when I read that book. (laughs) And the last thing is, I'm sure you all have seen, my HR diplomacy course launches in a few weeks. It's actually almost sold out. There are only two spots left. So if you want to grab your spot, I highly encourage you to grab it now. Um, If you need any uh, help subsidizing it, please let me know. I'm always here for all of you. And again, just a huge, huge thank you to Rebecca and to SkillCycle for just being here, being excellent partners to work with, letting me talk about all the things I love to talk about, and then also giving all of you free coaching. I know. Likewise, thank you. And thank you for having me. And thank you for the Workweek team. And, you know, thank you to my SkillCycle team, but all the people behind the curtain that are making all this stuff happen too. So I appreciate you. And for everybody who's in HR, thank you. Thank you for doing the work, for doing all of the hard work that you all do every single day. I see you, I'm here for you. Don't be shy when I mean it. Like when I say that I'm HR for HR, I don't have to need anything from you. You can just reach out. I'm happy to chat and offer anything. I love it. Um, it was so great to see you all today. Next week, next month, we will be doing another HR series for moving to monthly. So every month Yay. to hear from me. I can't wait. Um, I'll talk to you soon. Thank you for being here. Thanks, Rebecca. I appreciate you so much. Thanks, Tabba. Thanks, everybody. Have a good day. Bye. Thanks for tuning in. Keep up with all the latest HR resources by subscribing on Apple, Spotify, 
Google, or wherever you listen. And if you love I Hate It here, tell an HR friend. I'll see you next time.